This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Age of Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, Maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now, and if not... Just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome to this episode of Mysterious Circumstances. Today we're going to be talking about the death of Annie McCann. And as you guys heard at the end of my Project 1794 episode, I'm not going to cover just regular true crime unless I have an interview. I'm going to leave my specific podcast, this one, to the more strange and weird and mysterious cases. This one is definitely one of them. But before we get going, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. I got James Tanner, Jake Webster, Glenn Catlett, and Squeakat. And Squeakat, you are on the $10 tier, so please get a hold of me. You can message me on social media, email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com, and we can set up a time for our uh, monthly video chat. Other than that, for those of you who would like to join, you can go through and check out what kind of stuff I got on Patreon. I think we're up to like 90, almost 100 episodes on there now of all bonus content that is not on the regular feed. I mean, like three, four years ago, I did a two-parter on the Ketty murders. I've done exorcisms, weird, mysterious stuff, just all kinds of random stuff. There's a little bit of everything on there for somebody. Even got some gangster episodes. I did uh, some episodes on the Dubois brothers from Canada. So if you want to go check it out, go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. I got a $2, $5, and $10 tier. I also have to give a huge thank you to Nikki Cropper. Nikki researched this episode for me, probably because I wasn't doing it fast enough. (laughs) Now, I'm totally joking. Nikki knows I'm joking. But she goes, what if I just researched it for you and you can just add to it? I said, you know what? That is a fantastic idea. So... That's how this episode came about, and it was one that she had requested previously, probably like six months ago. So, Nikki, you did a hell of a job, awesome research, and this case is definitely strange and is going to make you guys use your heads. You're going to have to pay attention and think. With all that behind us, my name is Justin. This is Mysterious Circumstances. You're listening to The Death of Annie McCann. So to add some context, a little bit about Annie, she was a sweet-natured, sheltered, very sheltered suburban girl from Fairfax County, Virginia. 
Her parents were Mary Jane and Dan, and she had an older brother in college. She really didn't go to malls. Uh, She didn't party with her friends. For the most part, she was a homebody. She was not very good with technology at age 16 either. She could barely work a flip phone. And I mean, this is 2008 where everything starts popping. You know, you got Facebook, stuff like that, everything going on. I mean, she was pretty young for her age. Like I said, she was 16, but she still collected Arthur cartoon DVDs and Madeline books and stuff like that, which is totally fine. Now, she was also a devout Catholic. She was always smiling and upbeat. She was a vegetarian. And judging by the artwork that I saw of her paintings, she was a very talented artist as well. So, so on Halloween 2008, when Annie used to come home from school, if nobody was at the house, she was supposed to call one of her parents, usually her mom. So this call never came. And her mom called the neighbor to see if the car was in the driveway or they had seen Annie and there was no sign of her. So mom ends up calling dad and dad goes and he rushes home. About soon after he gets there, the phone starts ringing and he thought it might be Annie. So he picks up the phone and it was an automated phone call from the school stating that 16-year-old Annie never arrived at her school that day. So her dad calls the police. He starts freaking out, which I'm pretty sure every parent would. And the cops really didn't think it was that serious. They thought she was just a runaway or she'd be home soon and just really didn't put much thought into it from what I understand. So her parents go and searched her room and they found a note on her bed. And this is a very interesting note because it starts off by saying, This morning I was going to kill myself. But I realized I can start over instead. If you really love me, you'll let me go. And it was basically stating that she decided to buy a plane ticket far away from here. And she said, I love life and I'm ready to live. And then you get down to the end of the note and it says, I know I'm only 16, but I'm almost 17. I'll be careful. And there was nothing in the note stating where she was going. So because Annie was so sheltered, And you guys know I hate making assumptions when it comes to cases, especially crime ones. But because she was so sheltered, it might almost be safe to assume that she was a little bit naive on how the world works and the outside world. Because all she really took with her was $1,000 cash that she had stashed away. She took her jewelry, she took her favorite clothes, and a box of Cheerios. And she took off driving her parents' white Volvo. Now, her parents stated that they were unaware of her being unhappy with her life. A lot of times, that's how it goes, unfortunately. And I mean, Annie, as a 16-year-old, she had just gotten her ears pierced. Like, that's, that's where we're at. You know what I mean? She hasn't lived a lot of life yet. We're gonna fast forward a day. On November 1st, 2008, her family starts searching all the local airports, all the train stations, looking for their daughter. Early the next morning on November 2nd at about 2.40 a.m., there's a man taking out his trash, and he finds Annie's body dumped behind some dumpsters. But these dumpsters were 50 miles away from her home, located in East Baltimore at a housing project called Perkins Homes. Now, Annie has no connection to Baltimore whatsoever. 
Police get there, and they say it appeared that Annie had not been beaten, she had not been strangled, she had not been stabbed. So they had to sit back and wait for an autopsy report. One of the things, too, is written on the back of her hand, she still had her daily to-do list. She had it written in pen, and it just said, like, iPod, trash, and then prayer. The police also find her backpack nearby. That's how they knew who she was, because inside the backpack they found her hall pass from school, a school ID, and her driver's license. And that's when the cops realized that she wasn't even from Baltimore. So they got a hold of the Fairfax Police Department and confirmed her identity within about 30 minutes. Now later on that morning, her car is found five blocks away, abandoned, at a Sitco gas station. When they search the car, they find an empty bottle of Bactine under the seat with the cap of it removed and outside the car. There were also more notes found, similar to the ones that were found in her house. So the lead detective on this case at the time was Sergeant Sean Jones. He's from the Baltimore Police Department. He automatically suspects homicide and he starts investigating. They check her cell phone records. There is no activity after 7.13 a.m. on October 30th, 2008. Police spoke with everybody that she contacted and they got no leads whatsoever. They also investigated two computers that she used at home. Also, no leads at all were found. So naturally, when they found the car abandoned, they found kind of almost a makeshift crime scene, but not really. They took that thing in for evidence. And a couple weeks later, on November 18th, 2008, there is a fingerprint hit from that car. They got a fingerprint off of it. So they send that in to get processed to see what they can find out. Now, while this was going on, about a month later in December 2008, the McCanns are starting to doubt the police work of Baltimore. They are very impatient. I mean, I get it. I'm a parent as well, so I can understand that. They go and hire private investigator and retired Baltimore Police Department detective Jim Consis. They also consult with Dr. Michael Bodden and Dr. Keith Abloh. Then we fast forward to March of 2009, and a medical examiner finalizes his findings in an autopsy report. He states that the cause of death was lidocaine intoxication, but the manner of death is undetermined. Now, as you guys know, there's a difference between cause of death and manner of death. So her blood alcohol level was 004 and 100 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine was found in her liver. There was no brain trauma, no organ damage, and no significant wounds were found on the body. So lidocaine is found in Bactine, which Annie was using to clean her newly pierced ears. An empty bottle was found in her abandoned car, and the cap was found outside of the car. Now, during the Mr. Consis investigation, the private investigator, he came across two employees of a pastry shop in Little Italy that remembered seeing Annie on November 1st. And they said that Annie was sitting at a table sipping a cappuccino with extra whipped cream. She had a little bit of a sweet tooth, and that's why Mr. Consis went to this pastry shop. That's a pretty, pretty smart move right there. 
But the kicker to seeing her in this pastry shop is the fact that Annie was not alone. She was with another woman. They estimated that the woman was between 18 and 23 years old. They said she looked tired. She had these big bags under her eyes. She looked disheveled. And basically, she looked like she was just trouble. She wore a hoodie, heavy makeup, and this is literally how they described it. Puke-colored nail polish. So, Consus had a sketch done, and he circulated it all around Baltimore and in Annie's hometown of Fairfax, Virginia. And the people in Fairfax, Virginia, they actually remember seeing that woman in a Costco, at a Catholic charity, and at Annie's church. They said that she was a Hispanic woman who said she needed immigration help. They even had the name Blanca Murillo, but nothing came of the name, and the woman was never found. Now, Detective Sean Jones, he gets this information. Like I said, he was a lead detective at the time on this case, and he said he looked into it and that it didn't have anything to do with Annie's death. In an ABC 2020 interview, he said, It's important, but we weren't able to verify it happened. Okay, dude. (laughs) Okay, I'm not a detective, I'm not an investigator, nor do I ever want to be. But I am a person with common sense, all right? And I understand their jobs are hard. I get that. I give credit where it's due, but I also give criticism where it's due. But to say that you weren't able to verify it happened? You have two witnesses at a pastry shop. One of them, when they saw the picture of Annie, she freaked out, like right there on the spot. So how are you not able to verify that this happened? Yeah, it's pretty important. This could have been the last woman to see Annie alive, and to be honest, the condition that she's described in, she could have been the reason that she was dead. We don't even know. But anyway, moving on. So we fast forward about a year to November of 2009. The print that they collected from the car ended up being a match for somebody who was already in the system, and it was a local teenager at the age of 16 at the time named Darnell Kinlaw. He actually lived at the Perkins Homes Projects where Annie's body was found. So, of course, they question him, and he gives conflicting stories. He told police that he saw a white male with a goatee drive up in the car, abandon it, and that he saw a body inside the back seat. Annie was lying face down, wet, her clothes and socks missing, the bottom of her feet clean. He then told police he and three friends moved the body from the car to behind the dumpsters, and then took her car for a joyride. So, while this is all going on, the parents also hire another private investigator. His name is John Cutter, and he's the president of a New York-based private investigative firm. Parents also hired him. He said that his investigators talked to Darnell Kinlaw, and he said the man with the goatee was actually one of his friends, who drove up in the car and asked for help moving what he described as a mannequin. Then Kinlaw said they found the car with the keys in it, in the parking lot of the housing project. He stated they found Annie dead in the back seat. They dumped her body and went through her stuff and her phone. They dumped those items as well and then took the car on a joyride. Kinlaw was eventually charged with the unlawful taking of the car. 
and I'm not exactly sure what came of those charges, because trust me, his name's going to pop up here in a second again. Now, since then, all of the teens involved have racked up more arrests, a lot more arrests, since November of 2008. So then we move forward a couple years to November 11th, 2011. Darnell Kinlaw, who was now 21 in 2011, kills his 26-year-old girlfriend, Lakeisha Player, inside her home during a domestic dispute, and after he does it, he takes her car for a joyride. He is charged with first-degree murder for her death, and he ends up getting 30 years. So now that his name is back in the headlines, that means that Annie's case is back in the news, and Annie's parents notice that it's the same guy. Now in that same 2020 interview that I had mentioned previously, lead detective Sean Jones says there are no similarities in the two crimes. Now I know some of you are probably like, how? But in all honesty, I kind of agree with that. The only similarity really is the taking of the car. Annie had no signs of physical trauma to her body. Lakeisha Player was killed straight up and afterward he took her car for a joyride so so as much as i hate to agree with that statement because it seems kind of callous i do kind of agree with it because in all honesty the only similarity is the taking of the car so we're going to move ahead to march of 2013 this is five years after annie's death but before we do we have to take a small sponsor break so you can either hit that fast forward button, I don't know, three or four minutes, or you can use this time to go take a break. Either way, I'll be right back here in a few. Gotta thank our sponsor for this episode, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to sponsorship opportunities such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and way more. I've personally been on Podcorn for probably about a year now, I want to say, and I have really no bad things to say about it. The One of the things that I really like about Podcorn is when you submit for a sponsorship, you can either type your message out or they have a microphone button. You can just press the microphone and say it, which for me is great because it saves time. And for those podcasters who have those amazing voices, that does help as well. And with Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can sit there and browse through all these opportunities right on this platform. You can set your own price rates. You can collaborate with brands directly. And you never give up any rights to your podcast. And Podcorn is also there to support you. And they are there for every step to ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for the brands. The whole marketplace mission of Podcorn is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when you monetize your podcast. Like I said, I've been on there for a while. I've gotten some opportunities from there. They work very well with you. It's a very easily navigated site as well, which is great for me because even though I'm a podcaster, not great with tech, it helps out having that easy site that you can just browse through all these opportunities and you have all these different options for all these different sponsorships. Like I said, it is super easy you don't pay anything, you sign up, you browse sponsorship opportunities for stuff that fits your show. Really doesn't get any easier than that. So, 
Go click the link in my show notes, sign up to Podcorn, and start browsing for all of your sponsorship opportunities today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving forward to March 2013, five years after Annie's death, it is assigned to a cold case unit. They determined that Annie's death was a suicide and that she achieved this by drinking the Bactine. Baltimore police never reached out to the maker of Bactine, which is Bayer, to ask if the amount of lidocaine in a 5-ounce bottle would be lethal. The cold case unit also stated that her DNA was found on the lip of the Bactine bottle and the spray top had been removed. Now what is weird about that is that the police say that her DNA was on the lip of the bottle. But on the bottle itself, there are no fingerprints and no DNA anywhere. Not Annie's fingerprints, not her parents' fingerprints who also handled the bottle. This is when the McCanns accuse Baltimore of just washing their hands of it and labeling Annie's death as a suicide. Now I'm going to reference the ABC 2020 interview, I think one more time, this is the last time. Stanley Bradford, he was Detective Sean Jones' boss at the time, said they thoroughly investigated and the FBI evaluated their investigation and agreed with their conclusion. The FBI did, like I said, agreed to look at the case and they stood behind the Baltimore Police Department's findings. That's that's a true story. So then, case goes cold for a while. There's nothing happening. And in 2015... The family purchased and received six black and white autopsy photos of Annie. Now, despite the police and medical examiners saying no injuries were found on her body, the parents say there are scrapes and bruises on her face, a scar over her eyebrow on her forehead that looks like a cigarette burn, a chipped tooth, and what looks like the letter J branded on her left leg above her ankle. They also say that there are signs of what looks like a sexual assault. So then the family goes and they seek help from Senator Charles Grassley, who's from Iowa. It's not even their senator. And they ask people to write him letters on Annie's behalf. So this is where Diana Downey comes in. She was the funeral home director and has been in that business for about 25 years. And she was the one who was there when Annie's body was prepared. She wrote a letter. And then the man who embalmed her three days after she was found said that she had suffered severe distinctive damage to her rectum that he had never seen in thousands of bodies before or since. So him and another funeral homeworker think that she was in fact sexually assaulted, and all of them believe that she was murdered. 
Diana Downey says that Annie's fingers were wilted and they looked shriveled like raisins, like her body had been soaked for several hours. She also said that she was unnerved after seeing the body and that there is no way this was suicide after seeing all the trauma to the body. Now, two experienced pathologists refute this, saying muscles relax after death, but the embalmer said the damage was beyond that. So it gives you a little bit of thought about what's going on here, okay? We got still got some stuff to talk about because it just gets a little, little more confusing. So on March 2nd, 2016, Senator Grassley sends letters to the Baltimore Police Department and the FBI. Baltimore Police Department and the FBI still stand by the original investigation done by Baltimore PD. He also wrote to the maker of Bactine, which was Bayer, and he got a totally different answer than what the police had been saying. Bayer stated that the amount of lidocaine in a single 5-ounce bottle is not enough to be lethal. Bayer said it would take three full bottles to kill a 110-pound girl. And then they go on to say that they had previously already told police the same thing. So what the hell's going on? And I will be honest with you, this reminds me of one of the first episodes I did like five years ago was Bobby Fuller. It was one of my very first episodes uh, back in 2016 before I joined the network, all that good stuff in 2017. But anyway, you know, they said that he had drank gasoline and killed himself and that's how he died. And I actually contacted doctors about that and they said there's no way that like your body will reject the gasoline before it kills you. It doesn't happen. I think there might have been one death you know, from people chugging gasoline or something like that. Your body just automatically rejects it. And it kind of reminds me of this case. So at this point, the family, they're not exactly sure what to do. They had just gotten this news from Grassley. They had found out what Bear had previously told the police department, saying that this much lidocaine in a five-ounce bottle of Bactine is not lethal. It's not enough to kill somebody. So Kinlaw, right around this point, while he's in prison, serving his 30 years for killing his girlfriend, agrees to meet with Annie's parents to answer some of their questions. And the family just wants to know more about the circumstances of her body, the car, the death. Did he see anyone? Did he see her before that? And if he didn't do it, to try to help them find out who did. So the family goes to the prison and meets with him, and the family said that he visibly was upset at times. You know, he looked upset, but said that he did not kill their daughter. So where does that leave us? Now, again, the family starts going after the police department, especially after the news of the the lethal dose of lidocaine not actually being a lethal dose in a five-ounce bottle. So the police come out and they start bringing up other notes that were found with Annie and other notes that were found as evidence at Annie's house. Notes where she's talking about anorexia, depression, how she has to hide all of these things from her family, 
In some of the notes, she expresses how she wanted to leave and she was just tired of living. One of them says, Pressure has gotten to me. I can't do it anymore. No one blamed themselves for this. This is all on me. One of the notes she had written to a friend said, My suicide has nothing to do with you. Now, the parents say those weren't intended as suicide notes. One was actually found crumpled up under her bed. The other one was found, and it was partly crossed out. Now, going back to the Baltimore police, they spent 1,200 hours investigating this case. And they still, to this day, stand by their decision that her death was suicide by drinking back teen. So let's get into some expert opinions on this. We got Dr. Michael Bodden, who is a forensic pathologist. He's very well known. He says that in no way can this be classified as a suicide. In 50 years of death investigations, he's never heard of anyone killing themselves by drinking Bactine. And besides that, there's not enough lidocaine in one bottle to kill her. He also disagrees with the funeral home director, and he says that he reviewed the autopsy photos, the same ones that the family did, and there is no evidence she was sexually assaulted. He says the letter J mark that looks like a branding could very well be an accidental pattern from blood settling. Then he goes on to say he doesn't think the mark on her forehead was a cigarette burn either. Honestly, I think he's pretty uh, pretty right there in the middle. I don't think he has that confirmation bias. I think he's keeping it as honest as he can and staying, you know, he's not losing his objectivity. So I do appreciate his opinion because he does agree with the back teen. He does not agree with the funeral home director saying that she was sexually assaulted because he saw the same pictures. He looked over all the same evidence. Another guy is Dr. Keith Abloh. He said it strains the imagination beyond what is rational to believe that a person intent on dying would choose this obscure and extremely uncertain method of attempting to take her life. To be honest, I've seen weirder deaths. You know, I've reported on weirder deaths. I personally don't know what to think about this case. I'm just giving you guys the facts and you can decide for yourselves and think about it. That's all my job is. (laughs) So then we have Dr. Harry H. Bonnell. He says that there is far more lidocaine found at autopsy than could possibly been produced by drinking five fluid ounces of Bactine, which basically means there was more lidocaine in her body than what is in a five ounce bottle of Bactine. All right. Now, how that interacts with alcohol or whether it later turns into alcohol, because we got to remember her blood alcohol level was 0.04. All right. So you got to keep take that into consideration as well. But he goes on to say it tastes so bad that no human could ingest it without violent vomiting, even though her stomach was full of it. There is a high probability of culpable adult involvement in this death. And to be honest with you, That's always a factor because her prints, her parents' prints, nobody's prints were found on that bottle of Bactine. The only thing they pulled off of it was Annie's DNA, which was around the mouth of it, around the lip of the bottle. That was it. 
ABC 2020 contacted Dr. Bill Mannion, who is a board-certified forensic pathologist. He's determined cause and manner of death in roughly 2,500 cases. Not one involved death by lidocaine or Bactine. But he also says that there is enough in a bottle to be lethal. In half a bottle, there's about 2%, and that is enough to be fatal. And to be honest with you, one of the major, major things that is weird for me is the fact that she did not vomit any Bactine. She had some in her stomach. And the fact that there were no prints whatsoever on that Bactine bottle. That does not sit well with me at all if this is a case of suicide. That for me is sketchy right there. Now Darnell Kinlaw aside, let's look at some other suspects. We have a named man in Gainesville, Virginia with an extensive criminal record of illegal narcotics distribution and production. Shortly before disappearing, Annie exchanged texts with a phone linked to him. The Baltimore police accepted his claim that it was a wrong number to his wife's phone. And then according to his neighbors, he has very, very strong family ties to Baltimore. There are also two named priests in Northern Virginia from the church where Annie went to morning mass and confession shortly before her death. One priest with experience in health care issues, another priest mysteriously absent at the time of Annie's death. We also have a named Baltimore attorney. Baltimore's lead detective accepted without question the denial of his relationship with one of the above priests that I just mentioned. We also have a named high school classmate of Annie's identified credibly to Virginia State Police by a stranger in downstate Virginia as a cyber stalker of another 16-year-old girl. And then, of course, we have the group of teenagers that dumped Annie's dead or dying body behind a dumpster. So, there's a lot of stuff to think about there. There is still a $15,000 reward for information in this case. And I've said it once or twice already, and I'm going to say it again. The fact that she did not vomit up that Bactine that was in her stomach, and the fact that there were no prints found anywhere on that Bactine bottle, but yet her DNA was found on the lip of the bottle. So how does that happen if a young girl is going to kill herself? Did she wipe her prints off and then conveniently die in the back seat? No. That didn't happen. I'm kind of, unfortunately, I just showed a little bit of bias there, but that does not make sense. It does not sit right with me. Anyway, always open to hear your thoughts on the case. I do appreciate other opinions and information. I do have to plug some sources here. We got the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, the Baltimore Sun, who did very, very well on a series of articles on this case. We have ABC News, philosophyofcrime.com, truecasefiles.com, heavy.com, and the Justice for Annie website. So like I said, I appreciate all you guys hanging out. Listening to this case, it is definitely a strange one. I really don't know what to think about it. The only weird thing for me is that fucking Bactine bottle. You know what I mean? That does not make sense at all. I think somebody assisted 
I really do. I think somebody assisted in her death. I do not think it was suicide, even though she might have written notes that were suicidal. Why are you going to wipe your prints off a bottle of Bactine after you get done drinking it? And then it's still debatable whether or not that amount of lidocaine in a five-ounce bottle of Bactine is even going to be lethal. And to be honest with you, I saw more experts saying that it was not lethal. Like, there was no way that was going to actually kill somebody. So, crazy, crazy case. Yeah, I suppose I do have... I was going to read some reviews after this episode. I think I'm going to hold off until the next one just because... Yeah, this is actually a pretty serious case. You know, I don't want to taint it with my re reviews and rants at the end. So, ways you can get a hold of me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, mysterious underscore podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at podcastmc. You can go by the Facebook page like that. You can join the Facebook group. And I'll just tell you right now, if you don't answer the questions, you're not going to get in the group. It's a pretty, pretty easy concept. But uh, yeah, other than that, I am on TikTok. I really, don't, I really don't post that much on there, to be honest with you. But yeah, just look for Burn It All 13. Either that or type in Mysterious Circumstances. I'm sure you'll find me there. But don't expect a lot of videos. It's not really my thing. Otherwise, I'd be doing a YouTube channel right now. So anyway... I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it was thought-provoking. For me, it was very thought-provoking. But yeah, love to hear what you guys think. Until next time, see you folks on the flip side.